sweating. All right, like welcome to episode. Damn it! Damn it! <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, geez. Here we go. All right. Welcome to episode 100 of the HPE podcast, playing with research in health and physical education. Um, I I brought this idea up to bring the five people together that came up with this idea back in um, Scotland and Edinburgh um, at the ASAP conference. And so uh, we have... Uh, five people on me, Risto. We have Aaron, Sarah, Dylan, and Kevin. I'll let them introduce themselves in a bit. But uh, the goal is here is to just ask a bunch of questions, some controversial, some not so controversial, just to get some discussion going and to um, just celebrate a hundred episodes of a podcast that has uh, 50,000 downloads so far. So pretty, uh, pretty happy about that. So maybe have a little fun. Uh, maybe have a little fun. Maybe. We'll see. So I'll start off introductions. Uh, Risto Martin and George Mason University, uh, second year here. My research is in after school pro- uh, physical activity programs that integrate other academic subjects. Um, I work also with uh, research in student attitudes in physical education and the introduction uh, integration of technology into physical education settings. Uh, so let's jump over to Aaron Centeo. Go ahead. Brief introduction. Yeah, Erin Santeo. Um, I'm currently at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Um, I've been here for two years, and before this, I was at Wayne State University. I did my studies at um, University of Texas at Austin. Um, my research area really focuses on two different things. Um, one is teacher professional development as it relates to providing quality physical education and physical activity opportunities throughout the school day. And then the other um, venue underneath my umbrella, I would say, is implementing culturally relevant physical activity and nutrition programming in whole, like through whole school approaches. So, all right, thanks, uh, Sarah Flory. Hey, uh, I'm Sarah Flory, and I am at the University of South Florida in balmy Tampa, Florida. I've been here almost ten years now. Um, yeah, ten years. Um, I did my PhD at Wayne State University in Detroit, and I study. Um, I, I do research about um, preparing teachers to teach uh, folks that are not like themselves. So um, folks that uh, come from marginalized uh, populations, folks that are uh, LGBTQ, um, just all of those types of things to make, uh, hopefully create teachers that are inclusive in their approach to physical education. Awesome. Dylan Landy. Hey everybody, uh, Tene Koto, Tene Koto, Tene Koto Katoa. Uh, my name is Dylan Landy. I'm an assistant professor at Towson University. Um, I did my PhD in education at the University of Auckland. Uh, my broad research areas are uh, equity and diversity issues in health, physical activity, and education. Um, recently, I published around LGBTQ issues. Uh, I have a background in critical social theories, uh, especially new materialism, uh, fematerialism, and uh, feminist theory. And more recently, I've been writing on qualitative methods and how we can make qualitative methods uh, enhanced in our field. And a recent uh, special issue in PSP with Sarah. So plug for that. All right, Kevin Richards. Uh, Yeah, so uh, Kevin Richards, um, I'm in uh, my second year, or I guess advancing into my third year now that we're done with the, the spring semester at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. 
My research focuses primarily on physical education teacher socialization, looking at how we recruit, uh, prepare, um, and then retain uh, high quality teachers um, within the field of physical education. Um, I also do a little bit of work with doctoral education uh, and social and emotional learning in physical education. Awesome. And Kevin, you said you were going to throw a curveball just to start. So we had, I sent everybody 14 questions. I don't know if we're going to get through all of them, but Kevin already came up with a uh, one off the top of his head. So go ahead. Yeah, we got it. We got a good one here to go around the horn with. Um, so the name of your favorite restaurant in your hometown where you grew up. For me, it's the Italian Villa. Italian Villa. Pizza Poyata, which is a pizza place in Jotsuna, Finland. Erin. So for me, um, I don't know what I consider home because home was kind of a little bit all over. I would guess, I guess it's where my parents are now, but that town has 1,200 people. So there aren't a lot of restaurants. Um, the restaurant that I grew up with there was called Russ and Rosie's. That was the only restaurant. It is no longer called that. And I actually don't know what the restaurant is called, but there's a bar there called the Lucky Duck that I know my parents visit. So that's all I got for you. All right, Sarah. Amazing. Um, I'm going to go with National Coney Island, which it's a chain, but you go there uh, to eat hot dogs. You go there to eat chicken fingers. You go there to eat just terrible food, but it's delicious and it's open late. And it's, you just, if you're ever in Detroit, go to a Coney Island. It'll change your life. Dylan. Uh, so I grew up in a small town called Fairlawn, New Jersey, and uh, my parents didn't have a lot of money growing up, so we didn't go to restaurants. So what I'll do is I'll say, um, after I graduated college, I lived in a town called North Bergen, New Jersey. It's right over the water from New York, and it's a locally owned um, place called Rumba Cubana, and it's the absolute best Cuban food you'll ever have in your life. And Sarah's pointing at herself going, I went there, right? Yeah, yeah, I went there. I went there with you. It was delicious. All right. So I'm going to go a little out of order here um, just to mix it up because some of you may have prepared for these. So what is the best decision you've made since grad school professionally, Sarah? <sighs> this was really hard when you sent this, and I'm going to try to be brief because I can ramble and you all know this. I think the best decision that I ever made uh, post-grad school was um, like continuing with ideas if they were rejected. Like if I applied for a grant and it got rejected, like I just, I reworked it and I reapplied and, you know, just like, it seems cheesy, but just like re-figuring ways to get the things done that you want to get done. That was the best decision I, and it was hard because you get rejected a lot in academia. So mm -hmm. I'm going to go with that. Uh, Dylan, best decision you've made since so, grad school? Yeah, so I find this question difficult for me because um, I graduated eight months ago and I really haven't had any professional decisions I've had to make since eight months ago. So what I'll say is I recently bought a Dyson vacuum and it is absolutely, um, it, it gets everything done. It's the best thing I've ever gotten. And it's, it's wireless, so I can get into the nooks and crannies. Highly suggest it for everybody here. Amazing. So I'll, uh, let's go, Aaron. I forgot what I was going to say now. Oh, actually, okay. For me, I think it's um, 
staying involved professionally. This was a decision that I made before grad school, obviously, like I've been involved in the PE world, I guess, for a while. But, you know, there's a lot of times after grad school where you're a new new assistant professor, there's not a lot of funding available. And I've always just tried to prioritize um, being involved in professional organizations and the variety of professional organizations. And I think that that has afforded me the opportunity to meet so many people, which has led to so many more opportunities, including getting closer to all of you. Kevin? Um, yeah, I, I didn't look at these questions beforehand. I'm, I'm kind of torn between two right now, and I'm just going to go with my instinct. Um, so when, when I finished uh, grad school, I, I was in a postdoc, uh, and it was a great uh, postdoc position. I was studying uh, self-determination theory, kind of playing out in the college classroom, um, really enjoyed it. I had a great mentor. Um, uh, and then an opportunity opened at Northern Illinois University to do a, a one-year visiting position. And, and I almost didn't do it because the, the postdoc opportunity was really a, a good setup for me. But I decided to, to take that kind of chance and it ended up uh, leading to some amazing collaborations with, uh, with folks that I still work with to this day. So I, I think that in terms of professional decisions, um, you know, that, that I can kind of pinpoint down to a moment and say this was a discrete decision that made me feel like it changed my trajectory. That's a big one. Yeah. And I'll, uh, I'll share a similar story in making a decision about a job. I, I think my uh, best decision I made was to take the George Mason job. You know, I, I got a job at my alma mater, Cal State Fullerton, right out of grad school. Um, very comfortable, very happy with where we were, very happy with the teaching and everything and um, having an opportunity to move to an R1, um, but leaving a job that I was very, very Competent, like confident in and happy in is a really big stress. And I had a ton, a ton of stress that uh, came out during that time of trying to make that decision. But now looking back two years back on that decision, I'm super happy that I made it. So, um, so let's go with the next one. Will your school be 100% online next fall? If you don't know, take a guess. Uh, Dylan. Um, yeah, so we've actually just got guidance on this. Uh, the main thing that we've been told is that as faculty members, we have the choice of how we want to deliver our content. So if we want to be at home and do it online, we can do that. If we want to be in class and do it that way, we can do it that way. Um, most people are most likely going to do a hybrid approach. But the main thing that's going to be different is that we're starting a week earlier and we're then going online the week after Thanksgiving. And the oh. purpose of this is because it's getting colder, uh, flu and allergy season comes along, not flu and allergy, uh, cold and flu season comes along. Sure. And that has the ability to uh, spread virus. Hmm. I think that's a brilliant idea. I, I, I think that just in general, it would be really cool if universities would just push up start dates and then have Thanksgiving be the end of the semester. I, I can't for the life of me figure out why that hasn't been discussed yet. But why not just begin like in the beginning of August instead of mid-August and then have the semester end at Thanksgiving and then you have a break until the new year? Dylan, Dylan wants a rebuttal. No, not a rebuttal, actually, uh, to augment. So uh, when I was uh, on the faculty at the University of Auckland, they had 10 weeks of instruction and then three weeks of uh, a final exam period. So when you think about the stress, the mental stress that students have, 
by cramming five or six classes into one week of finals. And they do it over three weeks and they get the same amount of content. Actually, I would say even deeper amount of content in 10 weeks. The, the, their system was brilliant. Yeah. Sarah? Um, we actually have a very similar thing happening where we have guidance from our president that um, our university president that uh, court like after the, the Thanksgiving break, there's usually only about one week of classes left afterwards, but that will be online and all finals will be given online um, in the fall. So um, as far as going online, I think if folks are comfortable to do a face to face class, they can, but they are trying to offer as many in person classes as possible in things like, you know, like a chemistry lab is very difficult to do. Uh, virtually. So then they're having to do a lot of things. So um, I think we are going to, I think personally, our program will be like more of a hybrid model, like you suggested, uh, but we are getting ready for um, looking at uh, online only after Thanksgiving. And then that way kids can go home if they need to and be home for the entire, you know, the entirety of the holiday season, at least um, here in the States, if that's what they do. So. Yeah. Aaron. For us here, um, they made the decision early that students were coming back to campus starting in the fall. Um, but I think what that looks like, they aren't really sure yet. There's currently a planning meeting, a planning group that really just started. They're planning on planning the month of June. But what we've been told is that we just don't have space for everybody to be back with social distancing guidelines. And so although the message is that we're going to be in person, a lot of departments are essentially making their own decisions and instructors of um, being hybrid or being completely online. For our education courses, I think that in our activity courses in kinesiology, any class over 20 students, they essentially said, we don't have space to social distance them. So you're either going to bring them in um, on alternating weeks, or if you have two a day, two days a week, um, you could bring them in on alternate days um, if you can make that work in the space that you're assigned. But if you can't, then you have to be online, essentially, is what we've kind of been told. Yeah, um, I'm I'm assuming that we're going to go mostly online, I think maybe 100 percent online. Um, but I think uh, Doug Letty shared this about University of Alberta on the last ASIP call. And uh, he basically said that. Um, they have gone 100% online unless somebody presents a, and they have like some form or some like uh, process to petition an in-person class, which I think is probably the the best idea out of all of them is to say everybody's online, but you can individually petition certain classes and they go through some sort of safety check to make sure. And he said all of the physical education classes are not going uh, to be, um, online. So we're not going to, sorry, not going to be in person. So they're not petitioning any of them. Um, all right. So let's go to the best conference for a content and B fun. Kevin. Oh gosh. You would come to me first on that one. Um, <clears throat> just yeah, not, so, uh... so just to clarify, not specific, like 2019, this just the conference yeah, that yeah, you know yeah, that yeah. you're going to go to. We were on the same wavelength there. Yeah. So for, for content, um, I'm going to have to say AERA. Uh, as somebody who primarily identifies as a researcher, I think that's the conference that better meets my needs. Shape America, I think, meets the, need, meets the, the needs of other people, in, other people in better ways. For fun, it's got to be ASAP. Aaron? 
ERA, I would say for sure, um, for content. I definitely enjoy ERA. I'm going to cop out here and say I can't really choose my favorite fun conference because it really just depends on who's attending um, in in the separate years, right? So sometimes you get a great group of people and it ends up being a lot more fun than you thought it was going to be. Although I will say that out of this group, I have probably attended the least amount of ASAP conferences. Um, so I haven't been able to enjoy all of that fun with you Sarah? Sometimes you get with the group and it's so much fun, you end up getting a tattoo to commemorate it. Who knew? There are rumors around around that. Uh, Sarah? Um, you know, this is when I, like, I thought right off the bat when you sent this question. I was like, oh, absolutely, ISEP. Like, that is because I really enjoy getting the perspectives from multiple places across the world. About for content and or for fun? So specific. Well, for at first it was for content, but then I thought about it, and I'm, like, hearing everyone else ch uh, chat about it, like, I don't come away with, like, my brain doesn't hurt as much after ISEP. Like, people really challenge me at, at AERA. And that's not to say that there aren't people that challenge me at ISEP, but, like, when I think about it, like, sometimes my brain is just so exhausted after AERA. So I think um, I have to amend the original answer I was going to give and say that AERA is amazing for content because it really does force me to push my thinking about scholarship. Um, and so far... Um, Although Aaron, good answer. It depends on who you're with. Uh, but I've had, I, I've really, really, really enjoyed my time uh, at the ISAP conferences I've gone to because the community is sort of built into um, the conference itself. So, Dylan? Yeah, um, similar answers. So uh, the reason AERA for me is uh, the best content is because not only um, are the PE and uh, there's a sport there as well are they really dealing with some of the top level issues and research but beyond that right so if i want to go to another sig on queer studies because that's what i'm interested in they have a whole group for that if i want to go to a sig on learning about john dewey they have one for that um they have the curriculum studies overarching division so when i think about where the top researchers go um you know that is definitely AERA. When it comes to fun, though, and this is just as important, um, this is a this is a tie. And uh, I'm sure all of you know that ISEP is up there. But I challenge everybody here and everybody uh, uh, that is listening to this to get down to a physical education New Zealand conference. Pens. They have um, a costume uh, uh, competition. They have a massive dance. Um, everybody lives on campus. So you have to do it, uh, it, if not to see New Zealand, but to have the time of your life. Sarah. I have a question about this conference. Um, is there a talent show at the conference? Uh, there's usually like a, a dinner and a banquet that has multiple types of like game, like oriented things. And then after that, they do a pub crawl. So, and this is all included in your registration and the registration is cheaper than many conferences in the U S I should say. So you go to like eight different like places, you try like a, a food at each one. And it, it, it is one of the best conferences uh, for fun. I, I highly suggest it. I'm still going to make a, too. but I'm still going to make a plug for a talent show. 
at some point, like at summer camp, like an end of conference talent show. Just putting it out there. You Any should you should present that. You should you should go to New Zealand pens and then go in and just your your submission is a t- talent show. A sixty minute session just for a talent show. And just have folks sign up when they get there. Yeah. Um I I will say uh ARA for content because I, I agree with Sarah, my brain hurts there. I agree with Dylan in that um I don't I don't even take advantage enough of the other SIGs because of the stuff that's happening in health and physical education. Uh content is so heavy for me that I'm like I'm drained going from place to place to place. Um and and I wanna say I am gonna say ICEP for fun, but I don't want to say that ICEP, the only reason I go to ICEP is because it's fun. They they have a lot of really cool scholars, really good work, and it's a, it's a really great place to meet colleagues internationally and get a good, uh, good spread of that. Um, so uh, I'll roll right into the next one. What is your favorite conference, your single conference that you've ever attended? And I will, I will start ASEP 2018. Um, I found it to be a super cool venue, um, awesome people. It was a world congress, uh, so it was even bigger than a normal ICEP. Um, I got to travel with uh, with my wife, Laura. She was there in the evenings, and that's what I think is cool about ICEP as well. They have these events, and you can you can bring your partner to, to those events. Um, and I, I thought it was really cool worldwide content and kind of pushed me to think outside the box a little bit. Um, and I'll leave the other fun conferences for you all. So let's start with, uh, Kevin. Um, oh gosh, I, 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 you know, this is, this is interesting for me. Um, and I don't think that this is just because it's so recent. And this might surprise some of you, given given some of the things that happened. But I, I think uh, AERA in Toronto, to be honest, because that was where we all kind of like our our group, all the people on this call. That's where we all started kind of coming together, and you know, I really felt like we started gelling and had some really critical and you know professionally moving conversations, like the kind of conversations that make you think about the world differently. Um, and uh, you know, I, I've had that experience at conferences in the past, but this this one in particular, I think, was you know really moving. Aaron. Oh boy. I I have two, and they're very different from each other. Such a rule breaker ICEP, going with two when asked for one. Go ahead, give them both. ICEP, I don't know what year, maybe 2018. It was in New Zealand. Um, 2000. Well, I don't. In well, New Zealand, two thousand fourteen. Fourteen. Um, so that was my first time attending an ISEP conference, and it was amazing. I would say that the one thing that was unfortunate about it is I didn't necessarily have as good of a professional network at that point, and so I didn't know very many people to be able to make it even better. But I think that it was a great a great conference. And same like you, Risto, I was able to um, bring my husband um, and uh, we were able to kind of go on that tour of Australia and New Zealand while we were out there. And so it was, it was amazing. Yeah. But if I had to think about like 
as far as changing my profession, a conference that was like changing my profession, I'm going to have to go with a shape conference actually that is a national student leadership conference when i was an undergraduate um i attended two and i would say that that is what put the nail in the coffin for me to become a physical education teacher just in general and then led me on the path to higher education so so that 2014 conference in in new zealand i flew all on bonus points to get there, I stayed with a wrestling coach's family that I've never met and just got shuttled back and forth to the University of Auckland. And it was funny because you said you didn't have a professional network at that point yet. And I was like, I was just hanging out by myself. And, you know, Steve was there. So I was able to hang out with him and other people. But I agree. I, I think that, and that's why that uh, Toronto conference was so cool because we got to meet, we had all kind of settled or started getting a little bit of a professional network by then. Uh, Sarah. Uh, I'm going to piggyback and use the same conference you said, uh, Risto, and say ISEP 2018 in Edinburgh. Um, that was the first ISEP I'd ever attended. Um, I was just blown away at uh, just like how many different perspectives that, that I was able to, to learn about and the, the, the network of people that I met um, internationally that, you know, you get to meet some folks that, that attend like AERA um, when it's in a, a coastal city that folks can get to easily. Um, but not as, not as, you know, you didn't meet nearly as many people there. Um, and, you know, I stayed in the dorms. Uh, my partner, Sam came to, and, and uh, it was just, it was just super duper cool to like, be there to see everything kind of unfolding. And, and, you know, that's when I decided like, you know, if I can only go to two conferences a year, I, I want to try to prioritize ISIP if I can, just because um, you, it's just, especially for, because of the work that I do, I just uh, with different perspectives and cultural, you know, um, lenses and whatnot, I just felt like it was a really cool um, conference. And that's where we set up our Twitter account. That is very true. That is very true. Yeah. At a little cafe, yeah, you, I, you typed out my yeah. uh, my profile. I appreciate that. I, I I think I was the one who set up both of them for Pro you. Actually. You're probably right. You're probably right. <laughs> so Dylan, favorite we, we uh, age. favorite conference you've ever attended? Um, so as far as friendships go, I feel like I set in edinburgh is when a lot of us got together and um we we really got to know each other at that conference in different ways um and it's also somewhere places from all over the world people from italy people from france people from china people from south korea people from new zealand people from australia obviously the u.s and canada like us some people from brazil they they all go to ISEP. so the diversity of ideas um, is, uh, you can't beat it. My favorite conference, though, for me personally, um, was Double ARE uh, in uh, Melbourne, um, Australia. And Double ARE stands for the Australian Association for Research and Education. And the reason why it was my favorite was because I got to listen to some people um, that I just, I really highly revered. And listening to them speak uh, about not only education and health and physical education, but 
broader issues around equity and inclusion in education was mind boggling. I mean, I got to see people like Jan Wright. I got to see people like Richard Tinning. I got to see people um, like Mike Jess, uh, uh, Mary Lou Rasmussen. It's just an unbelievable setting. And the depth of thinking at that conference is good. Your presentations though are 15 to 20 minutes, no, 20 minutes of presentations and 10 minutes of discussion. So you got to bring it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if you had to go to grad school all over again, you couldn't pick your own university, you couldn't pick the one uh, school you went to or where your advisor is now, where would you go? Anybody ready? Hands up. I'll give you some time. All right. So I would pick University of Queensland, Brisbane, Australia. It's the only other place that I applied to uh, besides Teachers College. Um, When I was in California and trying to figure out where to go, um, I crossed off a lot of different places in the world and I wanted to go to a beach and that had a physical education program. So I was like, okay, UQ, like they have a good program. So Dune McDonald actually called me the day after I had accepted uh, Teachers College. And then I got to interview, fly down to Brisbane out of Teachers College for a position there that obviously I did not get. Uh, But it was just like, it's this place that has been like calling my name. And I, I feel like if I had to do it all over again, I'd go there. Dylan. My question was, who is going to be your advisor? You had to choose one. Did I even think about that at that point? Absolutely not. That's not how my brain was working in 2011. Kevin. Um, <clears throat> does this have to be current or could we go historical? Um, that's, that's your interpretation. Wow. So your interpretation. That is a drop. I'm going to give, I'm going to give both. I'm going to give both. Okay. Uh, current where the chips are right now, I would, I would go to Alabama and study with Kurtner Smith. Um, Templin's my guy, but if you're taking Templin off the table, then that Matt's the, you know, arguably the, he's in the top echelon of socialization researchers right now. And I think I could have learned a lot from him. Don't laugh at me, Aaron. I'm trying to be nice. Um, if we're opening it up and we're going to go historical, uh, UMass Larry Locke. Ooh, solid. Who else is ready? Going to Sarah. I will go, um, because my answer is you're, you're all going to be really disappointed in me. Um, I was just thinking about like other places like that I would want to learn and live. And I was thinking about like where you all are. I was like, Oh, I would have gone to the university of Hawaii. That'd be amazing. Like, um, but then I was also thinking about just getting out of the country and, um, you know, like what if I went to like Ireland and, and studied with, uh, Mary O'Sullivan or what if I went to, um, Auckland and studied with Katie Fitzpatrick? Like there's so many, like a, Sarah cut off. So she's what she was saying is there are so many amazing scholars that she would want to go study with. And she's back. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sorry about the pause. Um, but yeah, I, I couldn't narrow it down. Um, and I think at the time when I started my PhD, I had no idea what I was getting myself into anyway. So um, I could have probably just like thrown a dart at a world map and, you know, 
I would have been fine with it. Yeah, and I agree. I was there too, and that's what pretty much I did with a little bit of aiming. I was looking at more, and I know that this is not the way you get your PhD, and it's not, you know, like Steve asked me very directly if this event didn't happen in your life, would you still come to Teachers College? And it made me really, really, really think about it. But I still went. And honestly, like I, I found out who Steve Silverman was really in my first conference that I went to. And people were like, so you study with Steve? And I'm all, oh, man, this guy's like a really big deal around here. Like I landed in a good spot. That was exactly my experience. It, it's so amazing how sometimes, you know, things just go well and you fall, you land on your feet and you have no way of explaining how it happened. And obviously that's not how everything works in every situation. You know, some people end up, you know, in, in, in advisee advisor relationships that don't work really well for them, but I just fell backwards into having Templin be my advisor. Um, and it was the best thing that ever could have happened to me, but it was completely unplanned. Yeah. Aaron. I don't have a good risk. I don't have a good answer. So, um, I've been thinking about this for a while and I still haven't come up with a good one. So, well, because you um, have, you have university of Illinois, Texas at Austin, and you can't go to Hawaii. So those are all three pretty good choices to go get your doctorate degree. So I can't, I can't call that either. Right. So that's, yeah, maybe that's why, but I was thinking about this and although it doesn't fit like all areas of what I'm interested in, I think I would go study with Ong Chin at University of North Carolina, Greensboro. A good choice. Solid. And he usually has money, so you'd study for free. There we go. But I I just feel like um, he has some really, there's been um, him and obviously Kathy Ennis um, have done some really great things in that program. And there's been great things that have come out of it. And I think I really would have benefited from that opportunity. All right, Dylan, if you had to go back eight months, where would you go back and study? <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I love the, uh, the wrinkle that Kevin put into it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with that one. Uh, historically, um, I would go to Loughborough University and study under John Evans. Oh, good choice. Oh, good one. Um, yep. In my, he, he, he studied directly under Basil Bernstein, who obviously is one of the top people in education um more broadly uh, as far as research and as far as thought-provoking ideas i think um he's had a lasting influence in the field um i i think that this is important to say for me personally i wouldn't do my phd in the states and that's because i'm not the type of person who works well under that structure i need freedom and i need the ability to like just dive into different areas and like you know, not take all these classes that weigh down my time in this way or that way, but really be able to do a research project. And for me, it, it would be a split between two places and probably depending on who would take me, um, David Kirk at Strathclyde or Jessica Ringrose at uh, University College London. Um, those two places to me, I would die to work under either of them. Yeah. 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 And I think, Dylan, what you said there is is super accurate and I would not have succeeded at UQ, right? Going in and assuming that they're like, Hey, in six months you have to have like a really good idea of what you're going to do. And just like, let you loose. Like 
I did not have a strong enough research background or an understanding of what I wanted to do to be successful in a in a UK style system that you see in Australia, New Zealand, UK. So I think for me, it was good to have all of those courses that kicked me around a little bit and forced me to really buckle down and understand what I was getting myself into. There are positives and negatives to both. Um, and I think that it just depends on the person. Um, and you, you have to know what you're interested in, what you want to do and how you work. Yeah. Um, and for anybody who's listening to this, the name of the university does not matter as much as the person you're going to work with. So make sure that you prioritize that more than anything. Yep. Absolutely. Great advice. Agreed. Uh, what, what's your favorite class that you've ever taught? Aaron. Um, that's an easy one for me. Uh, social cultural issues and physical education. Um, Sarah's very familiar with this class. It's one at Wayne State. Um, Nate McCautry used to teach it. I took it over for him once he went into administration. Um, absolutely love it. The students, it was always their favorite class and the conversations were just great to the point where I am going to be starting it with my undergraduate students in the spring here at UH Manoff. So, yeah. Awesome. So you, you pre, uh, prepared a new course that was not a course before or they already had it in the books? Yeah. No, um, it's it, well, I mean, we use the new course like a course number, but we um, it's essentially, you know, pretty much a new course. Awesome. Excited. Sarah. Uh, I have a tie. Um, my middle school methods course is, I, I specialize in secondary physical education because little kids like don't get my sarcasm and my jokes. Um, and I just can't like do all this shoe tying and the boogers and I just, you know, I love children, but you know, um, but I really, so my middle school methods course is the first time that my students, um, get to see secondary ed the first time that we take them out to an urban school. Um, and I infuse a lot of different stuff into that course that uh is sort of i think it's the first time i try to I, I try to blow minds in that course on a, a variety of levels so we do a lot of adventure education in that course um that's where i do the immersion project where students have to um like really examine who they are as people and um you know spend some time examining like their privilege and things like that so that's always been a, a course that i've really enjoyed teaching even though it's always in the spring and it always conflicts with conference season and it's always like i always feel like i'm catching up but then the past fall i taught a doctoral seminar in our teacher education doctoral program and i haven't had an opportunity to do that um at usf just because it just hasn't been in the works for me but this like working with doc students and these are students that are like getting their PhD in like social science education or, um, you know, early childhood education, just working with um, students that are so passionate and interested in education and going into higher education and they want to change the world. Like it's just so different than teaching undergrads. So that really um, that really fired me up and uh, made me appreciate um, that that course. and I can design whatever I want to do. So that, those two courses are have been my favorite. Great segue uh, here on bringing the doctoral seminar because we are launching Ben Dyson's doctoral seminar June 16th plug and the first person talking on that doctoral seminar launching June 16th is our Dylan Landy who is going to answer that question next. So what is your favorite class you've ever taught? Uh, 
So when I think of my favorite class that I've ever taught, I don't think of content. And I know that's like weird for everybody. I think of the people in the room and the dynamic that was produced in the room and how they made particular contents come alive. Um, and there was one class uh, in 2016. Um, it was a third year um, health education methods class, sexuality education methods. And the way the students made the content come alive in the class, like I'll never forget, um, they developed a way to teach about lubricant and they brought in all different types of lube that could be used. And they were passing it out and having people feel it and be like, see, this has these positives and these have these positives and these have these negatives. And some people can't afford this. So then they use, you know, coconut oil. Why don't you try doing that? And then they linked it back to how lube has always been around um, historically uh, and how it's used naturally in different ways. So it's not about the content. It's about the students that make that happen. So with that said, I'm currently now working with an independent study on qualitative methods, which is why I'm really interested in it with a doc student. So that's interesting. But that class will always be my favorite. Awesome. Um, So I, somebody wrote on the chat that I look so uncomfortable. I don't. Anyway, uh, no, I think Dylan, uh, Dylan shared some, uh, some of the articles that he's, uh, he covered in that class. And I'm, so I'm thinking about, you know, I'm, I'm reading up on this, I'm teaching a health methods class. And so what's interesting to me is when I brought this up to a colleague that works in this area, they're like, why are you covering that content? Everything in Fairfax County in, um, in family life. I think it's FLE, family life, something is 100% scripted. And so off topic here, Dylan, I'm, I'm going to ask you this because I haven't had a chance to ask, actually ask you this question is, again, I'm going to cover the content and I'm going to cover it well. But what do you say to that when uh, when family life education, family life education, FLE, uh, which includes sexuality education and all that stuff is 100% scripted and the teacher actually doesn't have the leeway to do anything different. So I think the same thing when I think about curriculum packages and physical education that are 100% scripted, it shows a lack of trust in your teachers. End yeah. of story. If you trust your teachers and you trust their knowledge and you trust that they know their students, you don't tell them what to do. You allow them to be creative. We can't see teachers and students as things to dominate and to control and to regulate. We need to see them as productive agents that have the ability to transform education and not reproduce it. And can you just give a plug because this is going to launch on Tuesday the 9th and I know you have an NC Apert, uh, uh, is that a, pod, a podcast or a webinar that you're doing as well? Yeah, so um, I have a, I have a NC Apert, um, well, Shape North Carolina or NC Shape has called me, they called me to do a webinar on sexuality education. Um, what I'm going to do is an introduction uh to sort of um, basic concepts around sex, gender, and sexuality. Uh, I'm also going to talk about how to build an inclusive classroom and uh, drawing on some of the methods that I learned overseas and whatnot. 
And then we're also going to uh, really talk about how we can set up assignments that allow students to critically think about gender, critically think about sex, critically think about sexuality. So that's that plug. For the next plug, um, yes, I'm doing the, the doctoral seminar with uh, Ben uh, Dyson's class at UNC Greensboro. In it, um, we discuss model-based practices and actually something that we just discussed should they be as regulated or should they be more open? And it's a really good conversation. Um, if you haven't read uh, our paper, uh, Landy Fitzpatrick McGlashan 2016. Um, and we also discussed my uh, 2018 paper around LGBTQ issues. It's called uh, Queer Inclusive Physical Education. Yep. And the NC Shape is uh, June 11th, this, uh, this Thursday, uh, 3 p.m. Eastern. All right, so my favorite class that I've ever taught before um, is Kinesiology 243. This is teaching lifetime physical activity, and it is a class that I always wanted to teach at uh, Cal State Fullerton. Um, it's taught by a good friend of mine, Clay Sherman, um, but he let me teach it in summer school in Costa Rica. And so we took uh, 20 kinesiology and physical education pre-service teachers to Costa Rica for two weeks, and ended up teaching stand-up paddleboarding, surfing, orienteering, uh, yoga, all these different things, and did a community service project uh, in addition to that, which um, I've done two other study abroad programs. Uh, the two other ones are to uh, Rio and Brazil, and I'm really hoping that 2021 or 2022 that I can run a study abroad to Finland. So y'all are interested in chaperoning welcome uh kevin what do you think best class you've ever I taught feel like uh, yeah i feel like going last on this one's a tough draw i mean I, i've never done the service learning thing um michael hemphill's done that a lot too uh and that just sounds absolutely fabulous so i, I don't really have that experience to draw from i've never i've definitely never taught with lubricant before that was a completely new uh thing for me to learn about so I don't really have an experience that I can draw from that I think I can put in that category uh, in terms of teaching health education or sexuality education, although, uh, Dylan, it sounds like a really uh, uh, in enlightening experience. Um, uh, both at the University of Alabama and uh, now at Illinois, um, I I've had the opportunity to teach a graduate level course uh, on occupational socialization theory, which, of course, is the kind of framework that most of my work is driven from. Um, and uh, that's been a really great experience uh, working with our doctoral students and kind of um, seeing uh, and learning about them as people. We do a lot of kind of autobiographical work in that class um, and with, through a socialization lens. And I feel like I, I walk away knowing the students a lot better, which uh, I think is a, a wonderful thing. Um, but also, um, I think my favorite part about teaching is that they all have their own angle or own perspective or own kind of other area that they bring to the picture. So maybe they're interested in assessment. And then we talk about social assessment through a socialization lens, or we have a student right now who's looking at bullying. Um, and so we're talking about how teachers are socialized and the, the impact that that has on bullying um, or, or their prevention of bullying behaviors. Um, so I, I end up learning a ton from them, which, uh, which I think is, uh, you know, really makes for an enriching, enrich, enriching course experience. Will you go into higher ed administration or retire gloriously as an associate professor with tenure and mail it in? Sarah, 
This is an either or. It's an either. You, no, it's, it's just a prompt. It's just a prompt. So, how do you how do you so, see yourself so my, retiring? I, I want to say something. I'll answer it. Sorry, Aaron. Um, <laughs> this your thought about being a binary is exactly what I thought about. I'm I'm thinking, you know, um, Risto, you are running like an amazing after school program and you the reach program. What if that launches and what if that turns into like a multinational like thing? So I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, do I plan on staying on the academic track? Yeah. But I, I recently saw this, um, Australian uh, comedian gives a graduation speech and he says that he his thing is is that he dedicates himself to pursuing short-term goals and stop thinking about the long-term arch of things because as you complete more and more things what you're supposed to do will open up and you know you might lose that shiny thing out of the corner of your eye and think it's his term. So I'm focusing on the short term, and my goal right now is to finish that paper that I was working on before this. Awesome, and and I would agree with that because I I have I have thought about that. Is what if something in the private sector comes up that's really really intriguing? Because I, you know, you you see people leave academia all the time, not a ton, but you know, a good example is Russ Carson, really successful in academia and then he leaves he's got a really good position and he leaves the he leaves that position for something different and i think right now and maybe this is naively so like i look at like uh, i don't see myself leaving i don't want to be in in uh higher education administration but i do think that at the same time after a certain point, you'll want another challenge. You'll want something different. And and I think a lot of more senior scholars have taken administrative positions. And I, and I don't think all of them take it because they look at the position and go, oh, I have to. Who else is going to step up? And I know department chair-wise that sometimes happens. But, you know, I, I look at it and think right now being an 8 to 6, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Monday through Friday on an 11-month con- uh, contract is like nails on a chalkboard for me. I don't want to do that. I don't want to lose the best part of this job, which is flexibility and passion for me to do whatever I want. And if I want to run an after-school program two days a week, I can. And I can just use that as part of my job. So, um, Aaron, what do you think? So I don't see this transitioning happening soon, but I do see myself at some point being in administration. So I'll be a little bit of a softball from those of you who have spoken already. I definitely want to like keep progressing as far as like an academic scholar and where my passion lies with my students. I think if once I do make that move into administration, what I'm going to miss the most is my students and having that positive um conversations and experiences influencing my students and working out in in the schools with teachers Um, but I think eventually hopefully after I get past full professor um, I want to move into administration and I kind of see that as my overall like vision is to just really create positive change and I think that administration is 
a place where you can do that. And I don't know what that change looks like right now. And it probably is dependent on context that I will be in at that point. Um, but I think that a lot of great scholars before us have ventured down this road. And um, if I could be as half a good a scholar as some of those people and half as good as administrators as some of them, I think that I would consider that successful. But I will say that if I do make that transition eventually, I want to be someone like Steve Silverman that stays at conferences and is still engaged in the field, um, even if he has ventured into administration, um, because I, I just see that as really important. Sarah? So I go back and forth about this quite a bit because I think just the state of um, higher education and education in general has been so volatile in the past few years that, um, you know, it's, for a long time it wasn't a sexy time to be a, an educator. And I don't know that that's changed that much. But now that we've had a pandemic and folks are seeing that, you know, teachers are essential workers, if we're going to, you know, narrow it down that much, that maybe we'll see an uptick in our in our teaching programs. Who knows? Um I would, I will not say that I won't do it, but I definitely want to um, sort of exhaust the passion that I have for doing research and writing before I go down that road. Um, if I had to do it in order to, you know, support my family or whatever it was, then I would, I would do that. But, um, um, and yeah, I would like rock the heck out of like a pantsuit every day if I had to, you know, whatever. Um, but uh I, I've seen, I've had a lot of great interactions with some uh, folks in my in my college. Um, being a department chair is the most thankless job in uh, in academia. They get a lot of work put on them. Um, assistant dean looks like it's you know like it's kind of a good mix, and you can still sometimes um, supervise doc students and stay involved. Um, dean, wow, that's a lot. That's a lot of work, and I don't know. Um, I don't know if I if I want to do that. So. Um, you know, I've been the president of a roller derby league. I know that's not the same, but like I've, you know, managed um, an organization of a hundred people and, you know, with all sorts of different ideas and whatnot. So, um, you know, I think, but like I said, I just want to, uh, and again, a roller derby league is not the same as a university. I'm not making that, I'm not making that, you know, comparison, but I just think um, if the opportunity arises or, or I'm sort of um, forced to make that decision, I think I would do so, uh, Sort of happily if, and, and i would take on the challenge um but i definitely want to you know keep active in research and and teaching as long as i can so so kevin that's my non-answer kevin i feel like you have uh, administration written all over you so prove me wrong me yeah i feel like you're gonna be like no, some I... sort of you're gonna follow in the footsteps of tom templin be a assistant dean at a at a big 10 university i i, I don't know i mean I, I would never I would never rule anything out. You know, I, I think that there are things that I'm doing right now that if you asked me 10 years ago, I would say there's no way that I would be doing them uh, or that I would be motivated to do them or even to try. Um, so I think that, you know, it, I, I don't know what me 10 years from now is going to say to that question. What I do know right now, though, is that, um, you know, like somebody else just said, department head is one of the more thankless jobs on campus. It is a position that um, you know, by definition, you you can almost guarantee that you're not going to make everybody happy. You're always going to be dealing with conflict. You have people coming to your door to complain about things sometimes that maybe don't really need to be complained about in that way. Um, I, I, I just don't think that that's for me. 
Um, I have a real need to try to, to, to please people. And, and I don't, I don't like it when I feel as if people aren't happy with me, uh, hearing other department heads talk about some of the conflicts they have to navigate, like it keep me up at night. And I just, right now, I don't want that. Yeah. So we're, we're coming up on an hour. We didn't even get through like nine questions, but, um, I'm going to, uh, end with this one. Who is the most influential person not your advisor you have had in your career thus far? Sarah Flory. Dang it, Risto. I knew you were going to do this. Do you want some time? I'll give you mine. Um, What's that? Do you want some time? I'll give you mine. Go ahead. You go first. All right. So I'm going to put Kevin Patton, CSU Chico. And I don't think he knows that he is a very influential person in my career, but I had a conversation with him at AERA uh, when I was in my first year uh, as an assistant professor at uh, Cal State Fullerton. And he said, if you ever want to have an opportunity to jump to an R1, not that you need to jump because he's also in a CSU and he's been very happy there and been there for a long time. He said, not that you need to jump, but if you want to have the opportunity to jump, you need to continue publishing like you were at an R1. So you have that opportunity to, whether you say no to that job or whatever you do. So I really took that to heart because he's a you know, senior scholar. He's at a CSU. He's a, um, you know, I think he's a department chair at this point. Uh, and, and he's always presenting at ARA, like almost every single year he has something there. And I, I've, I was always wondering why why you're still publishing so much or why are you still like super active where um you know so that was uh that was mine so shout out to CSU Chico Aaron This is not going to come as a surprise to anyone I don't think um like every answer I have a couple but I'm going to have to go with Nate McCautry Sarah's advisor um as you know, coming out of my PhD, I landed at Wayne State and it was definitely a blessing for me um, as a young scholar. And Nate was transitioning into department chair there in kinesiology. Um, and as he was doing that, we had a lot of opportunity to um, teach some, like co-teach some classes as I was taking over some of his classes. And so I was able to um, experience him as a teacher with students. And then also we worked on a lot of grant projects together and grant writing and, and everything. And I think that the one thing that I admire so much about Nate taking me under his wing as a mentor is that he's just so selfless in everything that he does. And what I mean by that is he wants, he genuinely wants people to succeed and he's just willing to sit there and talk to you about like what that is and tell you like that's a good idea or that's a bad idea and just really have those genuine conversations with you as a young faculty member and I think that those are so important as we um, bring new people into the field into socializing them into academia and so um, those conversations whether they occurred at 6 30 in the morning in the building or you know um, at a conference or whenever it might be I can't I can't say how influential they were in the trajectory of my career. So I think, I think Nate for everything that he was able to help me with um, and still does. I 
we do a lot of work together still, even though I'm at UH Manoa now. Awesome. So I hear socialization. So we'll go to Kevin. Uh, yeah. So um, I've I've adhered to the rules on every single one of these <laughs> to this point. I'm gonna I'm gonna depart from the rules on this one, and I'm gonna give you two. And I phrased that in the form of a statement rather than a question, so there wasn't much room for negotiation. Um, like most everybody, <laughs> like most everybody, I've, I've got a I've got a long list of people who have been incredibly influential in my career, including Kim Graber and Amy Woods, who I work with now. But but the, the two people who I really think I look back at, and and they're kind of just on a different tier in terms of that influence, are Paul Wright and Karen Goodrell. Um, Karen was one of the first uh, consistent collaborators who I worked with after I, uh, you know, got out of my PhD program. She took me under her wing, taught me a lot about what it meant to be a researcher um, in, in ways that were different than how Dr. Templin taught me. Um, then Paul was the uh, department head at my first tenure, or not, not tenure track, but my first academic position uh, when I was at Northern Illinois for a, for a visiting stint. Um, and he taught me a lot about professional demeanor and how to conduct yourself and how to work with people and how to mentor and supervise and how to put the collective ahead of the self. Um, and these were all kind of things that I, that I felt like I, I wanted to do and wanted to be, but, but being able to see a model of somebody like Paul do it and walk the walk in addition to talking the talk was, was a really important thing for me at a very formative time in my life. And, um, you know, both I, th I think both Paul and Karen know uh, how how influential they've been for me over the years. But um, yeah, awesome. You listed five people, so awesome. Uh, Dylan, <laughs> <laughs> you're on mute. Oh, you're muted, Dylan. We 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 got almost all the I, way through I, the Zoom call, and nobody talked when they're on mute. Almost had it, Dylan. So, I, I, I did say that if he said five, I get six. Um, this is hard uh, because I can't include my advisors. And, um, you know, my undergraduate advisor told me to get a master's. I didn't know what a master's degree was, right? My master's, uh, my master's advisor was Steve Silverman, who encouraged me to study queer studies, right? Like, I didn't even know that was a field, you know, and then Katie and uh, Richard at at Auckland really crystallized and like taught me how to do things. Um, but I can't choose them. <laughs> Four. So Go ahead. I'm going to choose, I'm going to choose one entity in one person. Uh, the entity I'm going to choose is 189A Shaw. Um, and for those who don't know, that includes the people on this call. And the reason for that is um, I did not get into this game, we'll call it, when they did. So when I was interviewing, for example, Risto was like telling me how to do an interview, right? <laughs> so um, when I was at conferences, Kevin was teaching me how to like navigate like things at conferences. Erin tells me about the landscape of the field. and. Sarah obviously has been so influential to me to the point that we're co-editing a special issue together. We did. Um, so this entity has been one of the most powerful things in my career. Um, and I can't thank any of you enough for that. I'm going to mention one other person. Um, and he 
technically is disqualified because he examines my thesis. So he would be on like a committee and that's David Kirk. Um, he's been extremely supportive of me. Um, my first time at AERA, he came up to me and told me that my paper was brilliant. And hearing that from him made me feel like I had a chance at this. So, um, yeah. But thank you to all of you. Awesome. Thank you. And that's that's one of the reasons why episode 100 is 1899A Shaw. So, um, and also the first time David Kirk pulled me aside at AARA, he did not say my paper was brilliant. So that's a story for another day. Uh, he was a discussant. And, uh, uh, it, was, it was influential. It changed the way I do research, but he did not say the words brilliant ever in that conversation. Sarah, finish us off. Oh boy. So, um, you know, I, I think just like all of you, there's a lot of folks that have sort of given us like these helpful nudges along the way besides our advisors. Um, and I can, I mean, everyone else is, has used more than one. So I'm just going to break the rules too. Um, and actually two of them are your advisors. So um, Steve Silverman and Tom Templin have been just super duper like supportive. They're supportive of a lot of folks in this field. And, and you know, um, I think that's great. Uh, like you mentioned, Dylan David Kirk, um, if he asks you to do something like you, you just, you're like, wow, you think I'm qualified to do that? That's awesome. I'm going to go a little off uh, outside of PE, because this was really helpful for me. Um, when AERA was in New York, not just a few years ago, but like when I was still in grad school. So like, I don't know, ooh, 20, 2008, 2009-ish. I don't know. It was in New York. Um, there was um, a round table that was hosted by one of the divisions, and it was um, black scholars uh, was sitting down with, with uh, like junior scholars to like discuss their ideas. And um, this is a true story. That same morning, I, I had an appointment. I made an appointment with Kathy Ennis to talk about my work. And um, she ripped my theory apart. And I thank her for that because that was really cool. Um, and so I was feeling like really crappy about myself because I was like, oh, I'm such an idiot. Like, oh, what am I going to do? Maybe this is not for me. And later that afternoon, there was um, this meeting of, of uh, black scholars in, in education. And you could just go and and chat with with folks like Gloria Ladson Billings and 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 uh, and I got to sit down with um, Geneva Gay and I sat across the table from Geneva Gay and who wrote culturally responsive teaching which I have like earmarked and, and folded and all these things and I told her um, I'm interested in culturally responsive physical education and she said oh my gosh that's that's such a great idea and I totally understand why that's so important and necessary I think I skipped down whatever you know, avenue I was on, like, so giddy. I was like, oh, my gosh, maybe I'm not such an idiot after all. Like, maybe this is like, maybe I'm meant to do this. And um, that, you know, when you're validated like that, especially when you're just like, you know, a second or third year doc student, like not sure, like what the heck you're getting yourself into that can be um, that can be really rad. So um, Geneva Gay, I know you're probably not going to hear this, but um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for your for your support. Um, maybe I'll send her a fruit basket. <laughs> awesome so i i think this officially wraps up the longest podcast i've ever done and i feel not bad at all and for for those of you that are still listening and you're thinking wait what did they talk about what what was the purpose of episode 100 it was this like highlight episode of us just talking to each other about 
things that are really important to us. And I do not apologize at all because I think it's really important to celebrate small victories and build community. And, you know, I I have this record of the it's four of you. And this is what happens with Kevin's phone, Kevin's computer. He always gives me an update about what time it is. But like I was saying, the four of us, the five of us, we have this record going forward. And in 20 years, this podcast might not be there, but I'm going to, I don't know how we'll message in 20 years, but I'll like airdrop slash text message, email, hologram this thing to you. And we'll look back at ourselves as young, some mid-career on the left side of my screen, uh, scholars that are, you know, young, making life decisions, making decisions on all this stuff. And I and I think it'll be cool. Um, so episode one hundred mid-career, huh? Uh, Sarah Flory mid-career. Sarah Flory, come on, associate professor. I'm youngish. I mean, she just quoted. She was she was in uh, 2008 as at a ARA. Like, I don't know. I was still like assistant coaching and wrestling at that point. I even know what a PhD was. Uh, I was I was graduating from college. Um, Risto, with this being the hundredth episode, I think that we we all should take a moment to to recognize and thank your hard work. you, you've made this happen. You've been kind enough to invite all of us in to participate, but this has really been a project that, that you've driven and to get over the 100 episode mark, I think it's just such an incredible feat. Absolutely. Cheers to you, friends. Write that down Thank in a tenure letter, please. Just, here, you know, put it on uh, <laughs> letterhead, sign it, you know, anything to help. So I can get to where Sarah Flory is. So, all right. Uh, thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. Bye.